hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. All right, welcome back to the next episode of the BC Law Just Law Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Blakely. Uh, we're here with Mike Bodette of Channel 5. Uh, Mike is an investigative reporter who has worked in television for more than 20 years. Uh, he's an investigative journalist at WCB-TV in Boston, where he works as part of the Five Investigates team. Uh, Mike started his career in radio covering politics at the Massachusetts State House and also made stops at television stations in Bangor, Maine and Manchester, New Hampshire. Before joining WCVB, he was an investigative reporter and anchor at WFXT-TV Fox 25 in Boston. Uh, over the course of his distinguished career, Mike has received national and regional awards, including 20 National Academy of Television, Arts, and Sciences, uh, Boston New England Emmy Awards. His most recent Emmy came in 2021 when he was named Outstanding Investigative Reporter. Mike and his team have also won numerous Associated Press and Edward R. Murrow Awards for coverage of topics ranging from wrongful convictions to organized crime. Uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving awarded Mike and his investigative unit the National Award of Excellence for their coverage of repeat drunk drivers who continue getting behind the wheel. And he's who joins us today. Mike, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Surely. Uh, so uh, I figured, you know, we, we do these interviews and we talk to different folks. Obviously, um, you know, news is an important thing. Investigative reporting is an important thing. And, you know, in the times we're living in, uh, you know, given all the issues that we face, uh, you know, media and sort of social media and the way that people, particularly young people, uh, you know, follow the news and follow the issues which are sort of going on not only in our in our region, but in our country. Uh, there's a lot of discussions. You see people talking about Facebook and misinformation and, and just really the way people uh, come to find out what's going on, as well as, you know, being here at a, at a law school and being law students, you know, we're going to go off to do yeah, really any number of career paths from politics to, you know, sort of corporate law and all of these different areas. And a lot of times, as I'm sure, you know, you can attest, we're going to work on, you know, issues and be around issues and have, uh, you know, duties and responsibilities that, that can be complicated and can impact the way, uh, you know, the public knows information and comes to, uh, you know, find out about things that are right and wrong. And, uh, you know, where do you draw the line? And, you know, what is the role of a journalist? What is the role of a lawyer? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, how, how do we how do we shape how do we shape our news environment? And how do we decide what's right and what's wrong? These are all important questions to ask. And so I wanted to reach out to uh, someone who does this reporting and is familiar with some of these investigations and some of these issues. You also think about, uh, you know, c- career wise, there's a lot of folks who, you know, come from the law and go to TV, become journalists and and, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks, particularly at the national level, that do this locally as well. And so we figured it would inter- be an interesting conversation to have, and that's why we're really uh, happy Mike could come on. Uh, so first, I know I talked a little bit about you from what I could glean online, but I guess uh, there's nothing like you introducing yourself. So why don't you tell us a little about yourself, what you want folks to know. Sure. So I've been, you know, I grew up in Western Mass. I've been, you know, sort of a Boston has become my home since I went to college. I went to Emerson and studied broadcast journalism and then sort of knew I wanted to work in television. I kind of took a a leap of faith when I went to Emerson and then just sort of fell in love with the creative process. And then to get, you know, to to sort of make it in the the TV biz, so to speak, you need to start off going to the smaller markets and and work your way up. I did work in radio for a bit right out of school up at the State House, and that was an incredible learning experience working for this urban news service and having just this mentor who really – helped me to become a better reporter and tell really, really short stories. Because in radio, we think TV is is short, but in radio, you have about 30 seconds total. So right, right out of school, uh, being thrown into the state house and trying to cover these really complicated issues and boil it down into 30 seconds, it was mm-hmm. an experience. Uh, but that helped me to, to sort of boil down information, which I think is a key thing as a journalist. And then because I knew I wanted to work in TV, I 
ended up getting a job in Brockton. They used to have uh, like a local nightly newscast on the the cable station. So I worked there for a while and was working on my and what year? Reel. What year is this at this point? So this is back in. I graduated in '92. So okay. this was uh, so a while ago. I know getting old but uh the 90s and then i worked in brockton for a while and you basically back then it was a tape we call it a resume reel now because everything's online and it's just you know trying to get experience and that and the goal was always working at a network affiliate and sending out you know tons and tons of resume tapes and i finally got a job up in bangor maine at the nbc station up there and that sort of started my progression of working there for a couple of years then i went to manchester new hampshire and you're essentially working in a slightly larger market and trying to, for me, the goal was to get to Boston. And then by, you know, 96, so I was 25 and I got hired. The Fox station was starting news then. And so it was at that time, it was really unheard of for someone that young to get hired in a big, like top 10 market like Boston. But I somehow got in and, you know, sort of the rest is history. I was a general assignment reporter and covered, you know, just you name it. And then after a while, I really sort of wanted to cover more in-depth stories and just spend more time and not just cover breaking news and just feel like you're making more of an impact. So I switched. It was right around uh, 9-11, actually. So I've been thinking a lot about it this year with the 20th anniversary that I switched over to uh, investigative reporting. And so I've been doing it ever since and then worked at uh, Fox for close to 20 years and then I've went back in my thirties to get my master's degree because I knew I wanted to teach. And so it sort of, everything came together. I was teaching as an adjunct part-time and still working full-time, but then this position opened at Northeastern where they needed someone who knew video, but they also needed someone who could teach investigative reporting. And Mm -hmm. so I stepped into that role and then I ended up switching to WCVB, the ABC station here. And I work part-time there. And then sort of it's, it's been a great sort of collaboration because I teach an investigative class, and so the students work on stories that air on Channel 5, and then Mm -hmm. we've just done a lot of collaborating back and forth between, you know, some of the research that I'm doing at Northeastern about the future of video news storytelling, and so that's been, you know, we've been able to tap into sort of the resources at WCVB, and then I've done some traveling with the students to different countries on some international reporting trips, and we've been able to produce stories for WCVB's Chronicle news magazine mm-hmm. show. So Love Chronicle. Been, yeah. So it's been it's been a lot of it, – it actually works. Some days I can't remember where I'm supposed to be if I'm <laughs> at the TV station or at Northeastern. But, right. And it can get a little hairy, but overall it's mm-hmm. been – Really, uh, I, I feel lucky. Like you're lucky if you get one job that you love, but to yeah. have two jobs that I love, I yeah. feel you know blessed in that way. Absolutely. Now, did you always know you wanted to go the TV route? Did you ever consider print or other things? Or did you always know you you know front of camera? That's that's where I want to be. You know, I I like video. I always thought that you know I wasn't that I necessarily loved being on camera. I mm-hmm. think I grew to appreciate sort yeah. of the energy of that and. Yeah, I did, as I mentioned, I sort of took a little bit of a leap when I went to Emerson because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I said, mm-hmm. ah, this sounds like this could be fun. Yeah. And then as soon as I started doing TV and just the, you know, the power of video to capture emotion and to tell stories, I just, you know, I just, I, you know, I, I love a good print story. Don't get me wrong. And a lot of my colleagues at Northeastern, that's their, their specialty. But mm-hmm. I still believe that, you know, video can just really, if you have the right story, it can just transport someone right there and then just the energy i love the newsroom energy and Mm -hmm. it's always changing it's something different every day so it's just Mm -hmm. it it 
it's a job, but it can be a lot of fun on a lot of days. Certainly. Now that just to go back a little bit, that '90s Boston news scene. It's a imagine that was a sort of grittier, tougher place to to sort of uh, you know cut your teeth than nowadays, where everything. Well, I mean, everything's just so fundamentally different now with social media and mm-hmm. how we consume information. But but what was that like if you go back to then with you know I mean not only with news, but just the way the state was, the way the city of Boston was, things were just so different than, than they are now. Like what, you know, when, when you're working with students or you're, I mean, when you're doing reporting actually, you know, today as compared to then, like what, what is different? Cause it, it's pretty different places. It is. And, and the funny thing is back then we thought in the nineties, we were missing the heyday. If you think yeah. of like local TV news, you think of like the eighties mm-hmm. as the heyday. Anchorman, that whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like that was when we didn't have sort of this proliferation of cable. Yeah. And so that was the, you know, the three networks and mm-hmm. you know, these newscasters. Pre CNN. Like, exactly. Yeah. You know, CNN was around, but it wasn't yeah. quite what it is today. And now mm. what do we have? Hundreds of stations and, mm. and, and Netflix and all this on-demand stuff. So yeah. it's just it's TikTok, a, whatever they're exactly. doing on there. Yeah. It's it's, uh, it's a different world. So I think you know the social media aspect is obviously much different. And the reporters today, even you know, I look at our general assignment reporters and what they're expected to do on a daily basis. The number of newscasts that we have and how much content they have to turn out. You know, for the four, the five, the six, the seven, mm-hmm. and then they're expected to feed social media, and then they're expected to send in you know, written stories for digital. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it's a lot more. I feel like we had more time back then to work on certain stories than they do now. I think yeah. it's just the, the demands are higher. Mm. Yeah. Um, now, you know, at channel five, you know, what, you know, we talk about like a day in the life, you know, what, what is your, your job like when you're, you know, uh, just, just tell us about that. You, you're in the studio. I guess you, you were telling me a little bit before about how you, you know, you're able to be in person, which is, uh, you know, obviously great, but, but what's the day in the life when you go in there? What do you, what do you do? Sure. So typically, uh, you know, there's an editorial meeting in the morning. So one of us in the investigative team is assigned Mm. to attend that just to, you know, be present and to listen if there's any angles that we might be able to help the general news crews on, or if there's an angle that we as the investigative team can get on and get on TV. So we always have someone in there. So that happens if, if it's my assigned day, I'm in, in that meeting. And then, you know, it really just depends on what we're doing. We're a little more autonomous in that we're, you know, finding stories for the most part, you know, we cover what we as a unit decide is interesting. So we're Mm -hmm. always putting out public records requests and we're, you know, just trying to pay attention to the news of the day to see are there certain stories that we should be digging more into that we should be asking more questions on. And then I'd say some of the stories we get are tips, you know, Mm -hmm. we'll get email tips, we'll get phone call tips. And and a lot of times those can be fruitful. Sometimes I would say most of the time they're not necessarily fruitful, but Mm -hmm. it's that one tip you get that some insider who has information and so we're just pursuing that, you know, we're always, mm-hmm. I always, if you look at my desk, it's just a big mess of folders for every story that I'm working on. And yeah. you always just want to have a lot of embers in the fire so right. that, you know, one day you might be working on five different stories and then it might, one of them might go away for a couple months, but then you get a call about something else mm-hmm. or something else happens in the news or you're putting in public records requests, which can drag on with the government responses for months and months and months. So right. there's always a lot of different things that you're trying to push forward. But at the same time, you're trying to be productive and be, you know, you want to be on TV and show your face and let your boss know that you're, you know, you're, you're doing something right. Right. Because a lot of times, some fruit of the labor. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of times you can get sort of 
sort of lost in the weeds of a particular story. And right. so we try to we try to balance like working on long term projects with trying to you know, feed the beast, as we say. And that sort of, you know, goes to my next question, which was, you know, how do you find a story? Where do you look? What What is news? Like what, you know, you, you get all these tips, you get all this information. I mean, there's, on the one hand, how do you know where to look? And on, you know, the other hand, when you have all these tips and you have all this information, you obviously have limited resources to pursue stories. How do you decide from those tips and from, you know, sort of sniffing out where you want to look for stories? What is news? What makes the cut and what gets left on the cutting room floor? Right. I think, you know, I think as I get older, I'm able to sort of make that decision more easily than I used to be able to. Mm -hmm. And I I think one of the the basic things when I'm evaluating a story is, is who does it impact? And is there, you know, you want, it's not that every story has to impact everyone, because I think that's unrealistic to to think that everything's going to be of interest to everyone, but you want it to have at least some broad impact that people are going to want to tune into it and, and want to care about it. So if it's very specific and it's not happening to anyone else, mm-hmm. you know, it may not make the cut unless it's something so outrageous that we want to spotlight it as mm-hmm. an example of government waste or something to that effect. So I think we're looking for sort of that broad appeal. And then we're looking for, you know, something interesting or unusual uh, you know, I always, you know, I do a lot of government type stories too. So I'm always trying to put out public records requests mm-hmm. and think about, okay, what, what's sort of the official spin that we're getting from our elected officials? And is there more that we could uncover if we request their emails, for example, or if we request some sort of uh, document that could potentially lead us to something else? So I think it's a mix of all of those things, but I think at a Bottom line, it's got to be it's got to be interesting. You know, right. if I'm going to spend more than a day on a story, then it's got to be interesting. And if I'm bored, then obviously I can't expect our viewers to care about it. Exactly, well, that makes sense. And, and I guess, how do you cover a story? You know, from the time you decide, okay, this is this is news. What's the process like? Can you take us through that? Sure. So, I mean, a lot of it depends on the story, but we have a we we actually WCVB has been incredible in terms of dedicating resources to investigative journalism. Mm -hmm. So we have a team, it's myself and two other reporters, Kathy Kern and Karen Anderson. We have two incredible producers, Kevin Rostein and John Wells. And then we have an executive producer as well. Plus we have two full-time photographers. So all those people dedicated to covering investigative content. So we, you know, we are all in one office. and, And as you mentioned, we're back in the office, which is great just in terms of collaboration and energy and just feeling more engaged that I just feel like you don't get when you're, you know, when you're at home during this remote work time. And so we'll, you know, we all get different stories and usually I'll partner up with one of my producers and, you know, run the story by one of them, whether it's an area of expertise they've already covered or we'll just have a discussion about it. So that's usually how it starts. Like we, whether it's a, a news event that we're trying to jump off of, for example, the mass and cast situation mm-hmm. down uh, near Boston Medical Center where they're dealing with right. you know, so many people who are addicted and just sort of this humanitarian crisis really that's going mm-hmm. on down there. So that's something we looked at recently that's been in the news and we wanted to do sort of a deeper dive on it. Yeah. So that's one way we're finding stories. And then uh, – Typically, we're you know we'll start researching. We'll we'll try to get our angle. We'll start you know doing phone calls with people, background calls. Uh, we're we're trying to think: Are there documents that could help support this? Do we want to do a public records request if it's a government related story? So you know, trying to fan out and cover every possible angle. 
also just looking, you know, if you're looking at a topic and you're doing an investigation, you want to, you want to see everything that's been written about that or reported on that, just Mm -hmm. so you can, you know, be aware of what's out there and figure out what are you going to add to the coverage. So I think that's a lot of it. And then once you, you know, it depends on the story, like some stories we're doing a lot of background work first because we don't want people to necessarily know that we're doing a story on it. So we're not necessarily telling the people that we're doing the story until we've gathered enough uh, content. And then at the same time, you're, you know, every once in a while you're doing a, you know, a, a, a Q and a with yourself and your team and saying, is this viable? You know, Mm -hmm. do we have a story here? Yeah. You know, and sometimes you have to say, you know what, it was a good tip. It's not what we thought. Mm -hmm. Let's cut our losses and move on to something else. So that can be frustrating when you put a lot of time into it, but I think you want to continuously have those conversations before you spend too much time on something. And then at some point where, you know, we might be needing to get video. So we're sending out photographers. If we're looking at a particular person who did something, we might want to get some surveillance video of them, depending on the topic at hand, or we may want, we just need video of something like we're, for example, if we stick with mass and cast, we needed video of just the scene down there and, right. and sort of the toll that the people are going through. Those images are, I think, seared on a lot of people's memories at this point, given oh, how it's been covered. Absolutely. It's, it's tough. It has been covered so extensively. So, yeah. you know, that's, and then at some point we're doing interviews and then once we feel we have enough for the story, depending if it's a longer term piece or it's a, a quicker piece, sometimes there's competitive pressures. We might get mm-hmm. word that the Globe or one of the other TV stations is working on something. So we're trying to push yeah. it forward before them. Uh, other times we think we're, you know, on solid ground that no one else is doing it. So we'll spend more yeah. time, but at some point we're out there doing interviews with the, with the different stakeholders. And yeah. then once we feel we have everything that we, that we need, we're writing, but it's usually, even when we're writing the story and we're getting ready to produce it, sometimes a lot of the reporting comes at that tail end because mm-hmm. everything's just coming together. Yeah. Even if you've been working on it sort of throughout the process. So the end gets a little hairier, I guess, in that way. Now, just going off of that last point about, you know, uh, you, you have other news outlets in town. If you get, when somebody's getting ready to, to, to move on something, like, can you just describe sort of the local media environment? Obviously, you've got, you know, 457, NECN, The Globe, The Herald, uh, et cetera. You, you know, sort of what is that dynamic? I guess what differentiates you know, I guess using your example of the globe from, from TV news, someone like channel five, I mean, are these different, cause at the end, you know, news is a product that people pay for, whether it's ads or, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're, you're subscribing or, or otherwise, like, are these, are, are these different, uh, you know, customer bases, different types of folks, different demographics, or are you trying to cover things in different ways? Like sort of what defines the market in, in terms of who's doing what and for whom? Right. I mean, we have a lot of TV stations. I think any given market mm-hmm. has a lot of TV stations. And then we had in Boston, we had, you know, seven went independent because NBC right. came in. So now we have an additional TV station. And, mm-hmm. and some would argue we have almost too many stations. You yeah. wonder, like, long term, whether they can all sort of survive and thrive, especially given the changing dynamics of the business. But I think in terms of a market, it's a, you know, it's a, we have a, there's a rivalry between the stations, but I would call it a friendly rivalry for the mm-hmm. most part. I mean, we're competitive, but when we're out in the field and we're seeing people, we're fr- it's a small enough business that, You're you know, bump myself, into each other. exactly. Yeah. I've, you know, I've worked at multiple stations. A lot of us have worked at yeah. multiple stations. You're not so. like batting down the channel seven microphone. No, yeah, no, okay. I think it's, I mean, we obviously, you know, whoever you work for, you yeah. want to, you want to break the big story, but a lot of times, especially on the general assignment side, we're all covering the same thing. I mean, mm-hmm. you can turn on 
four, five, seven, Fox, whatever it is. And a lot, a lot of times at six o'clock, we're all leading with the same thing. We all have the same thing. So I like to think what we do in the investigative unit, we're sort of the differentiator because right. we're, we're trying to bring content that no one else has to that station. Absolutely. Um, what would you say is, is your favorite story that you've done, your favorite investigation that you really, you really liked? Or you're there, or there's something that you're just particularly proud of that you've, that you've worked on? Sure. I mean, there's so, <laughs> there's so many when I, when I think back, um, I mean, recently the mass and cast story, I think as a, as a unit, we did this in October where each of the reporters in our unit, we, we took on a, on a different day for a week and we tried to do a deeper dive. So I thought as a, as a collection of stories and, you know, I, I feel like sometimes stories are out there so much, they become almost white noise and mm-hmm. people are like, Oh, we're talking about mass and cast again. And so yeah. I think we we approached the story in a way that we wanted to cut through some of that and do yeah. sort of a comprehensive look over a series of days. And so the story that I looked at, we were trying to humanize it and show that, you know, yes, it's the place that you might be driving by. Uh, yes, it's the place you hear about on the news. And we think of it as, you know, those people and that problem, but that these are people's kids and loved ones and family members and that there are you know, families sitting at home wondering, you know, where their loved ones are and wondering if they're, you know, at Mass and Cass and and what that toll is. And we ended up focusing on one particular family, a mother's story, whose son had lived down there for a number of years. And he had actually been featured on CNN a few years back. And we ended up finding this video from CNN and we were able to use it because we're a CNN affiliate. And, and the reporter at the time had asked this guy and said, Hey, do you think you're going to you know, die from this? And he was actually shooting up during oh the God. interview and was saying, yeah, I know I'm going to die for Jesus. it. Well, fast forward, he, he died in the spring. And so we talked to, it was just a sad story, but you yeah. talked to the, the mother and, and sort of her, struggle, you know, while he was alive and even now, obviously that he's passed and and it's been difficult for her, but I felt we did a good job humanizing it. So while it wasn't the, you know, in terms of investigative reporting, it wasn't the, the biggest scoop in the world. I was proud of it from the standpoint that I feel like we had a lot of reaction from people who said, wow, I never, you know, really thought about that it's not just these people who are living in tents at Mass and Cast, but it's all the people behind them and the families and sort of the heartache that they're going through. Definitely. Um, what do you think? And I, and I think you've touched on this a little bit, but, but what's the biggest challenge, the biggest frustration, uh, you know, when you're doing this type of work? Because I imagine a lot of times you're there's friction when you're doing a job like this. And so if you had to look at something where whether it's a particularly particular story or particular investigation or just something that's inherent in the work that, you know, poses a challenge or poses frustration, what would that be? Well, I think there's always someone who's not happy with what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, that's sort of I learned early on one of my uh, producers who I actually work with now, but at the time he was my EP at, at Fox and and I was sort of new to the investigative thing and, you know, just stressed out because of the reaction that we were getting and the pushback we were getting. And he said, you know, you don't get into investigative journalism to make friends. And mm, so yeah. it sort of was, uh, you know, in some ways, if, if, you know, as long as you're doing your job and you're, you know, gathering the facts and you're trying to be as fair as you possibly can be, you know, obviously we have to check those boxes. But at the end of the day, just the nature of investigative reporting, people aren't necessarily going to be happy. Someone's not going to be happy with what you're, mm-hmm. what you're reporting on. And sometimes 
all sides aren't happy with what you report on, which sometimes tells me that we're we're probably you know hitting that sweet spot because because I think stories aren't always black and white. There's a lot of nuance in there, so mm-hmm. I think that's that can be tough uh, when there is pushback, and I think social media has only sort of amplified the pushback that exists out there, and and sometimes we have to remind ourselves that a couple of loud voices that are screaming about what you did do not mm. represent the audience as a whole. Right. And, and so I, you know, I have to remind myself of that too. Sometimes when things are going a little haywire on social media after yeah. a story. And, and I think that's, you know, probably fairly emblematic of the times that we're living in where, you know, the, the, the loudest people in the room are not necessarily the, the, the you know, we're speaking for the majority, you know, there's exactly. a lot of people with particularly loud megaphones and mm. it's a pretty distorting uh, time to live in. Um, would you say, um, do you think Boston has sacred cows? So in other words, you know, this is a city with, you know, very powerful entrenched institutions, you know, universities and, uh, you know, the, the, the archdiocese, for instance, we're all familiar with spotlight. Uh, you know, this is a state that had, you know, three consecutive house speakers indicted for like there, there's a lot of content in this mm. state, in this city, but do you find that there's anything where, uh, you know, whether it's institutions, companies, school, you know, whatever the case may be, where, you know, these are rocks that you want to turn over, stories that you want to report, but whether it's, you know, management or, or just however, where you can run into friction where there's people with a lot of power who were able to speak up and say, you know, stop looking at that. Right. I think we used to have them, and I think yeah. the biggest one would be the archdiocese. I yeah. think with the, you know, the child sex abuse scandal and sort of, I remember, you know, it, it always struck me and I was raised Catholic. So, mm-hmm. but it, it struck me when I first came to Boston, how often, uh, Cardinal law would be on television, just commenting on the most random things. And I was like, why mm. do we just as a new, like, why do we care? I mean, yeah. Like, why do we care what yeah. he thinks? And, and then it always did seem that he wasn't, he was, you know, sort of, handled with kid gloves mm-hmm. uh, on a lot of things. And I think it wasn't just in Boston. It was happening, you know, right. across the country. It's a global issue. Global issue. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think, you know, and, and the, you know, you mentioned the House speakers as well. You know, we have had, you know, a, a series of House speakers who were indicted. Um, you know, the, the last one, Speaker DeLeo, was not, but he was uh, an unindicted uh, co-conspirator. He Nothing you know, to see there. Insisted that yeah. he did nothing wrong in that situation. Sure. Um, and so, but I think you know, I, I I think politicians on Beacon Hill have done their best to insulate themselves from criticism. For example, the legislature is not subject to the public records law mm-hmm. in Massachusetts. So that's an example of how they. It's not that journalists are afraid to go after information, but we're facing roadblocks a lot of times in our ability to get information. Mm-hmm. So I think that can be a problem, and it's just it, it makes no sense that the legislature is not subject to the public records law. And we had, we actually worked on a story a few years back with uh, my Northeastern students, WCVB and the globe. And we tested, you know, public records responses from all the cities and towns and police departments across the state and found that most were not uh, complying. And, and they did, the legislature used part of that to reform the public records law and make it better. But it's still, I go back to, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's better than it was, but until the legislature is actually subject to the public records law, I think we have a problem, and I think it creates the potential for mm-hmm. the for our you know the powerful to hide behind things. Now the governor's office, Baker and you know Deval Patrick before him, they even though they're not required to comply, they've they've tried to be transparent and will provide 
information. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it shouldn't they shouldn't be exemptions for our elected officials. You know, it makes right. it harder. Uh, but I do think that I don't think that journalists are looking at certain institutions and saying. I'm not going to go after them if mm-hmm. if there's a legitimate thing. I think that I do think the sex abuse scandal with the Catholic Church was a real wake up call that yeah. said, "Look, we can't have uh, we can't have these sort of sacred cows that are untouchable." But do I think there are people that are not getting the scrutiny they deserve? Absolutely, and mm-hmm. and it might not be that we're avoiding it, but we may not realize what's going on. And, and Massachusetts has just been, I would argue, a you know, it's it's a good place to be an investigative reporter because there's just so much. There's a lot to find. There is a yeah. lot to find. So it's always interesting. Now, when you're, you know, you're a state house reporter, you know, when you're, you're standing inside of a uh, 24 Beacon Street, when you're in the state house, uh, you know, how would you, how is that atmosphere? Like, I know, you know, this, I think speaks to larger challenges we have. And I know that this issue of narratives, this issue of sort of inconvenient facts, the way that, you know, particularly within what people call mainstream media, uh, you know, I, I know an issue now is like with this, this Rittenhouse trial, for instance, it's, mm. uh, you know, I, I've seen some reporting where, you know, certain details of this, just because we're so used to seeing these types of stories, we tend to sort of fit people into, you know, some people thought there was a, you know, it was a mass shooting and it wasn't, and the the, the, the decedents were of this race and they weren't, you know, you know, just, just this climate that we live in is obviously very, very challenging in terms of separating the facts from the narrative and, you know, what the news is versus what people maybe want or, you know, expect to hear. But with respect to our politics locally, is there something unique is there some secret sauce so to speak in massachusetts that's maybe different than you know doing the same reporting in other states and other parts of the country or we is this just sort of par for the course with the 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 challenges that you deal with here because i know boston particularly within the legal community being a law school there's this very insular sort of good old boys under the table way of doing business but um you know in in your experience how is that here is it different than other places or is this just sort of we're, we're we're just another state and you know these are the same challenges other people face I mean, I think there are some states that have similar challenges, mm-hmm. but I do think a lot of it goes back to sort of the lack of transparency yeah. that we have and, you know, and, and the lack of term limits that we have for mm-hmm. our elected officials so that they can be there for a long, long time. And I think, you know, by not having sort of fresh blood and new ideas that sort of the the way things always have been done sort right. of stick around. So I do, you know... I don't want to cast the entire, you know, Beacon Hill in in a negative light because I think there are a lot of people up there who are trying to do the right thing. And I think, you know, as times change and new people get elected, we see more and more Mm -hmm. with transparency. But there's absolutely still this, you know, good old boys network that exists. And I think until we get more fresh faces up there and more sort of representation of we have a We've had Republican governors, but we essentially have a very blue legislature, and it's mm-hmm. been that way forever. Right. And so I think, you know, when you have essentially one-party rule, that sort of— Where's the scrutiny? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, and do you think that that at all influences, you know, just going back to the sacred cows idea, where the incentives are in reporting, where you have, you know, in essence, like you said, one-party rule, there's a you know, Democratic supermajority, but— Outside of that, you know, even in the private sector, you know, we could probably go through the list of, you know, wealthy people or, you know, sort of the well-to-do that have a lot of power in this city. I think maybe more so in other places in the country because we're not a very big state. We're not a very big city. And so, you know, you have, you know, a a lot of people who do have a lot of power. Does does that 
influence reporting all so in other words if there's stories because you know they're out there um with regards to the folks whether it's a political people or people in the business world uh is there a fear of of, of blowback is there a fear of you know not wanting to go against the grain or, or how does that how does that tend to work in your experience I think on the reporter level, there's yeah. not really a fear because to me, and I know, you know, people that I work with, if they're like, we like a good story, right? Yeah. And so to us, there really are no sacred cows because the more sacred they are, the more we'd love to, <laughs> you know, expose right. wrongdoing if in fact it exists. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think there's always the potential when you have, you know, you. I think it's anywhere really when you have, you know, sort of powerful wealthy people calling the shots, there can be a fear of going against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think the journalists are afraid to go against them. Yeah, I'm very interested to see what's going to happen with Mayor Wu mm-hmm. uh, coming in and sort of her new progressive agenda. And That's big because, you know, you know for a while you had this lineage of, uh, you know, Menino to Walsh to just kind of the not very diverse group by no. any stretch. No, we've um, had, you know, a – Decades of essentially white, Irish, and Menino, obviously Italian. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is a new world and someone who's coming in with, you know, progressive ideas and was elected by a huge majority. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be interesting to see how she takes that and transforms it into governing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do, you know, I think it's people like that that can be, you know, that can sort of shake up the system. And so mm-hmm. I think that can be good for the system, but it can also be good for journalism. Looking at the mayor's race, there were a lot of editorial voices, particularly, you know, I remember reading in the Globe but other places as well where, you know, obviously as the field was cut down, you know, there were, you know, candidates of, of color who did not, you know, uh, you know, move on in the race, which I know there were a lot of voices in the media that, you know, sort of analyzed that. What does that say about the city and, and the diversity of the city? You, you would see maps of, you know, who lives where and how did they vote and, uh, you know, there were other folks who I, I remember seeing one uh, story, if it was, well, probably wouldn't be in the Herald, but talking about how, uh, you know, George with the Boston accent, everything, uh, you know, how that sort of reflects like the old, you know, way and Michelle Wu being, you know, the, the, the future. And you could sort of, and she obviously won by quite a bit, but there is that, you know, very much, and you look at a map and you can see how just geographically entrenched um, you know, some of these mindsets are, but we are obviously at a turning point here. It has been forever that things have been relatively stagnant in terms of, you know, who calls the shots around here. But do you think, you know, being in the media, observing these issues that, you know, there's real change going on? I mean, how would you define this moment in time? Because it, it is, you know, historic. I know we're, we live in a time where, you know, we, we call sort of everything historic, everything's unbelievable, but you know, this really is. I mean, how right. do you think things are changing? You know, if they are, what is it like from the media perspective following that? Right. I think things are definitely changing and it's historic. But I also, you have to give Michelle Wu credit mm-hmm. because she's been in there as a city councilor. She's built up this organization. She's worked really hard. What would have been fascinating is if, you know, she announced she was going to run for mayor when Walsh was still in office before he went to Washington. And mm-hmm. so what would have been interesting is if we had a Mayor Walsh versus Michelle Wu election exactly, going on yeah. and how that would have shaken out. And would she, you know, she received more votes than any other candidate for mayor has received. So would she have beat uh, a Mayor Walsh? Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to that. But I think, you know, she, you got to give her credit in terms of, 
you know, as just sort of the organization and going into the neighborhoods and building this, you know, mm-hmm. deep support across the city that was able to to get her elected. So I think it's definitely historic and there's change going on, but it's too simple to just say she came in here with these progressive ideas because she's right. been around and she's, you know, she's done the the politicking that needed to be done to get that mm-hmm. swath of support. Now this hypo of, you know, potentially, you know, Walsh versus Wu, if, if that had ever happened, you know, part of the reason why, you know, we talk about things staying the same, part of the reason why they were the same for so long is no one would challenge these people. No one would mount a serious challenge to, to, to Menino or, uh, you know, to, to Walsh or, you know, even at the, you know, at the state level, you know, a lot of these elections are not particularly partisan. Um, do you think, you know, before Walsh was, you know, uh, called to Washington there, you know, Mr. Walsh goes to Washington, you might say, <laughs> do you think that, you know, given the dynamics in the city, you know, in the support that Michelle Wu had or, you know, whoever it might be, you know, you'd even be able to mount, uh, you know, a serious challenge to an incumbent who, you know, you look at decades of things staying the same. It seems like it takes something along the lines of, you know, Mitt Romney stepping down to run for uh, president or, or, or Walsh stepping down to go to Washington to, to really create the vacancy for that to happen. Or do you think, you know, in an arm's length way, in, a, in an election, in a, in a primary, that, uh, you know, things were changing so much that, uh, you know, an incumbent Walsh per se, uh, could have been ousted. I think, I mean, I. it's obviously speculation, but I think it's not beyond the realm of possibility mm. that she could have beat Walsh. Yeah. I mean, if you think about, I mean, we're seeing a little bit of the pendulum swing back nationally now with Biden mm. in office where it feels like, you know, we're, you know, as a country, we're so divided and, right. um, you know, sort of this progressive push that was going on uh, seems to be swinging back nationally. But locally, you know, I think she's cut from that same cloth in terms of pu- pushing that pr- progressive agenda. Yeah. And so there was some momentum there. So I, I do think that she could have potentially beaten him. But before we got to this point a few years back where we were looking at sort of this new crop of candidates coming through and succeeding on a progressive agenda, I think it's certainly possible uh, that it was hard to break through. Like, like you said, there weren't really – there were challengers to the incumbents, but they weren't really serious challenges. Definitely. Uh, we've touched on social media a little bit. I you know, I, I follow, you know, like, like a lot of people, for better or for worse, follow different things on Instagram. I do follow Channel 5. And, you know, thank one you. of the things I've noticed – sorry? I said thank you. Yeah, no, <laughs> one of the things I've noticed is, is it's almost like – I don't know who who puts these things out there, but some of these things are like – almost like sort of like memes, you know, the, the way you, you know, you, you think about what you see on social media. And I know it's an important tool, but as we've seen, you know, with what's happened with Facebook and, and misinformation, all these issues over the last few years, you know, there's a lot of questions around the, you know, the role that social media plays, how it's used, you know, what it does, uh, you know, to the media, you know, just speaking for myself, I've sort of felt like over the last few years, there's become this disparity between, you know, journalists on the one hand, and then just sort of like media personalities on the other, where you have some folks who, you know, there's a lot of great journalists, but it seems like some folks just sort of want to be on TV or they want to have the little right. blue check mark, the imprimatur of, you know, uh, of that. So I guess, what are your thoughts on social media? And, you know, why is, I don't want to call it legacy media, but the traditional, you know, journalism, the I team, the, you know, doing things on, you know, TV. I know not as many folks watch TV nowadays as, as, as they did before, but looking at that, you know, media fragmentation, that landscape going forward and where people's eyeballs are going, like, how do you, how do you think about those challenges? So I think social media is 
incredible in terms of, you know, connecting us and getting feedback from people, mm-hmm. uh, fact-checking stories, finding sources. So when I'm talking to journalism students at Northeastern about social media, and, and I always say to them, look, you all know more than I'll ever know about social <laughs> media. I mean, that's a given. Yeah. But I try to frame it in the way of how journalists can use it and how it can be used as a tool and so I think it can be a powerful tool, mm-hmm. but I also think there's a lot of garbage on social media. And I, you're kidding, yeah, a lot. <laughs> no kidding. Yes, it's uh, so it's just you know it's it's tough to sort through what's credible, what's not credible, and it just becomes to me it just becomes sort of information overload mm-hmm. where you almost just want to tune out because you're hearing so many things. And I also you know we've seen it in the national elections where people can essentially just get in these echo chambers where they're just hearing their point of view. And so it's just amplifying one point of view and it's their point of view. And so everything's about Mm -hmm. that. So I do feel that I still feel like journalism in general needs to do a better job on social media and, and really not go for sort of the, the clicks, right? I, I still think that's too often how social media success is viewed is whether you click on something and, and or yes, watch time. I know that's another exactly like yeah. there's a value to that. Yes. It can tell you how many clicks you got, but what are they clicking on? Are you actually giving them content that's meaningful and that they'll be interested in? And I think a lot of times the answer to that is no. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we don't give our audience enough credit. And when I say we, I'm talking about you know journalism in general. I don't think we give the audience enough credit that they actually want real, mm-hmm. good, yeah. sort of sticky information that they can get into and, and that we have all this content that we should stop, you know, stop with the, you know, the dog pictures you know and i like Happy a dog as much. to eduardo rodriguez yeah, yeah. exactly i like you know those. i like those as much as the next person but yeah. let's give them some real content and yeah. use social media you know to the 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 power the strength that it has because that is how, i mean we my research focuses on the future of, of video news storytelling and how do we engage the younger audience and the reality is it's it's on phones it's digital like that's how we we need to meet them where they are mm-hmm. we're not going to get them to necessarily tune in at six or 11. That's mm-hmm. just not going to happen. So let's really focus on going where they are and giving them good content. What's the future of local news? I think news and local news. I mean, one thing that surveys show is that local news is trusted more than other news outlets, whether that's because it's familiar, people know the people and television also is how most people get their news. Mm. So I think the future is strong if we pivot and we, you know, really focus on digital as well. So you, you know, play to our strengths. We have this infrastructure in place, right? We're, we're gathering all this content, we're putting it on TV and we're still, you know, people are still watching it. I mean, that's how the salespeople are selling the ads because we've got, you know, people watching and it's, and it's sort of keeping the business going. Mm -hmm. But I think what we need to do is really invest in a real way on the digital side. And there's some of that going on, but I think we need to do it even better. And so I think if we do that, uh, we can develop sort of more on-demand options for for people and give them the content that they want when they want it. And really, to me, it's always going to be around. I think people, you know, yes, it changes. You know, I'll, I'll talk to prospective parents who want to send their 
kids to Northeastern about, you know, journalism and they they hear about newspapers closing and, mm-hmm. you know, do I want to get into journalism? And I always say, yes, absolutely. It's it, journalism. It, it always has bugged me. I've heard it for, for decades. I heard it when I was at Emerson back in the nineties. Oh, journalism's dead. Journalism is not dead. Journalism is never going to be dead. I mean, people crave news. They crave information, how we deliver it is different. And so I think that's the key is we need young people to come in here and, and, Get into newsrooms. Like I always say, like we should be hiring more millennials, more Gen Z people, people with sort of these sensibilities that understand how to, you know, deliver content to people. And then taking, you know, the sensibilities that we have as journalists who are experienced and understand what a story is and, and delivering it to them in the way that they'll consume it. So I think we're always going to have news and I think it's I think it's going to be a, a profitable business but I think we need to evolve or we're going to be left behind by someone who does mm-hmm. figure out sort of that magic formula certainly um, now we're in a law school I'm in a, I'm in a law school <laughs> we're setting one uh, you know we have a lot of folks who you know who, who there have been you know obviously you know nationally and locally there, there are people who you know, do go from law or from law to politics, the media, you know, there is this sort of cross section of, mm. of, you know, careers here where you're, you're going to interact with, you know, for better, or for worse people, people like us. Uh, what has your experience been with lawyers when you're doing reporting and, you know, you run into that firewall, you might say, or, or, you know, you're trying to talk to, you know, somebody who's a lawyer to try to, uh, you know, develop a source or, or whatever the case may be. You know, we, we tend to think of in, in the marketing for law school that I, you know, when I was going through this process of applying, you know, the, this idea of, oh, you know, we're committed to, to justice and, and leaders and, and sort of all these, um, you know, concepts. But then the truth is, you know, I, I, I come to law school and you see a lot of folks who are interested in uh, big law and the, and the salary and the, and the office and, you know, the, the pomp and circumstance of, of all of that. And, uh, you know, a lot of times you're defending uh, companies which are not particularly popular doing things that I don't think many people would agree with. Mm. Um, but that's just sort of, you know, that's, that's, that's the business. And, you know, as you go on in your, your career as a lawyer, you, you sort of have to make those decisions of what's important to you and, and what kind of lawyer, what kind of leader that, that you want to be. But from your perspective, what has been your experience dealing with, with, with lawyers for better or for worse? You can, you know, right. I don't think anyone's going to be offended. No. Um, what is, what is, what is that like? You know, it's it's a uh, it's like any field, right? There's yeah. all sort. There's like people. There's lawyers that I've been incredible sources yeah. that have been you know really helpful. Whether it's a story you know that I met them on, and then they've been a good source going mm. forward in the future. But then I think there are lawyers also who you know are sort of roadblocks to information mm-hmm. because they're protecting their client, right? Yeah. Which I get. So I think it. It runs the the gamut, but overall, I would say that you know most of the lawyers I run into, you know, they want their you know whatever, whoever they're representing, they want sort of the truth for that person to get out there. And so mm-hmm. I, I feel like the the best relationships I've had are lawyers that are willing to talk to you and and sort of understand like you know we respect that sometimes conversations have to be off the record and people can't be quoted. And there's some lawyers who you know, oh, nothing can be off the record. That's just not how it works. But I feel like the the lawyers that I've had the best relationship with respect, you know, respect what we do and we respect what they do. And it's sort of a give and take, right? We're trying to get information from them and they're sometimes trying to use us to, you know, put their client in a certain light or put something else in a in a different light. So I think it, it's a good give and take. I, you know, we we run into I always love being in a in a courthouse. I 
you know, whether it's going in for documents or it's, you know, covering mm-hmm. a trial, you know, there's nothing quite like that when you actually can sit through and cover an entri- entire trial, which unfortunately happens less and less in the media that they'll dedicate the resources for a full trial. But when you do that, if it's a story that you've happened to, to work on and you convince the the higher ups that this is a trial worth covering, I just think that's a you know a fascinating experience to just to to experience and to you know have the interactions, whether it's with the lawyers or the judges. So mm-hmm. I think overall it's a good experience. But you know, there's certainly been you know bad experiences along the way too yeah. when people don't want to, you know, they don't want to talk to you or you get the no comment or, or, or it's clear that they're, you know, they're representing their client, you know, but it, it's sort of like an indefensible type of client, but they're doing their job. So I can respect what they're doing, but it doesn't, you know, ring yeah. true. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, two more questions for you. One is, uh, you know, you look at public opinion, public opinion polls, uh, the media is the least trusted institution in America. Obviously mm. people are, unfortunately sort of resigned to their corners and, and echo chambers and all the terms that you know folks use to describe the way things are nowadays I, I know with local news it's a little bit different it's a little bit more uh you know endearing i i mean i myself i tend to like i like chronicle i like the lo- I, mean, I, I tend to enjoy seeing places i know and people i know and things that are important just not the same talking heads yelling about things that right are probably never gonna you know affect us and in the politics and things that i think people tend to either tune out on or, or tune in to such an extent that, you know, it's just become so unhealthy. And so uh, at the end of the day, though, people do have these attitudes towards media. They think that there's fake news. They think that, uh, you know, you know, there's bias. And, you know, a lot of cases there's truth to some of these feelings that people have. Uh, but the bottom line is that, you know, this is what we're dealing with. This is, you know, how, how folks feel. And, you know, at being, you know, the media and being on that side of things, I can imagine that that's, you know, frustrating. And, you know, these are the challenges that you have to deal with. But ultimately, I, I think the question is, how do you how do you fix that? How do you turn that around? Um, or I guess, how would the industry turn that around? Because it's obviously become a pretty bad problem. Right. And, you know, I don't know that we can completely fix that just mm-hmm. because, there, I just think because we're so divided right now, yeah. and you know, and I do think even on the local level, you know, we experience, you know, whether it's myself or my colleagues, you know, there's a lot of anger toward the media out there, and so mm-hmm. we've seen just incidents of, you know, people whether it's screaming fake news or it's like actually, you know, physically coming after reporters. You know, that's happened, and you know, I think part of it is you, you know, I think. It's it's on journalists, and I say this to my students too. Like, it it's on us now to really sort of double down and do our homework and get our information right. Journalists are human, so heck, mistakes happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have to do a better job making sure that we're not making mistakes and that we're really, you know, double, triple, you know, quadruple checking everything. That we're trying to bring in as many opinions. That we're looking for the nuance in a story and not just looking for the for the black and white. But I think we just have to keep doing, you know, what we're doing. And just, you know, I think our former president, you know, really sort of epitomized using fake news for every bit of coverage that he didn't like. And, you know, I'm sorry if if you don't like the coverage, that doesn't make it fake news. So I think we can't, you know, hide in a corner because someone's, you know, calling us fake news. But we don't want to give someone a reason to call mm-hmm. us fake news. So I think it's sort of, it works both ways. Going off of that, how strong do you think are, are, are narratives in the media? There were folks who, who really feel like, 
you know, th- th- there's not so much, uh, you know, b- b- about reporting, but that there's certain institutions, certain news outlets where, you know, you sort of know where they tend to stand on issues. You know the type of reporting they're going to do, which which side, so to speak, that mm-hmm. folks are on. I know this isn't as much of an issue, you know, locally with TV. I think, you know, when it comes to the, the papers in town, uh, people tend to have, have a, a sense ideologically of where they stand. But certainly nationally, you know, there is this feeling of, well, these folks kind of, speak my language. I want to put that channel on and we'll add, you know, CNN. I don't know about that. And at the end of the day, we, we fall into these echo chambers and it's certainly not healthy. Is that, is this a, a, a phase that we come out of or, or where does this go? Well, I think a lot of it comes back to the, the 24 hour news cycle. Mm-hmm. And so when you have CNN, Fox news, MSNBC, you know, the list goes on and on that are trying to fill 24-hour-a-day programming, they can't just fill it with news. And so we've seen more and more commentary out there. Mm-hmm. And so it is the talking heads and the yelling and the perspectives. But And I think the problem is, is that the average viewer out there thinks that's news. And it's not. It's commentary. If you look at, you know, sort of how Fox, MSNBC, and CNN, if we want to pick those three, how they cover sort of a a news event, not how they spin it, but how they actually cover something, they're all pretty much the same. Like there might be little differences. And yes, we can say, you know, Fox is going to have a more conservative, MSNBC is going to be more liberal, CNN, maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Uh, But the news coverage, I don't think the average journalist is, you know, carrying some agenda out there, whether it's on the local level or the national level. But I think because there's, you know, it's hard to figure out, like it, it comes on and you're like, is this news show or is this, you know, commentary or is it a little of the, it starts to just become the same. Right. And so you don't know what's what. And so I think that only feeds this, you know, sort of cynicism. So I I think it's partially, you know, on people to, you know, make sure that they're exposing themselves to multiple points of view and perspectives Mm and in coverage. Um, but, you know, I think as long – and I don't think this 24-hour news cycle is going away it's in, in, in the shouting matches and all that, which, you know, makes people want to tune out but also fires up people on both sides. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a tough atmosphere, but I just hope that people recognize, like, what is news and what is commentary. Again, like you say, the Globe and the Herald. Yes, the, the editorial page of the Herald certainly has – a more conservative perspective than the editorial page of the globe. But if you're looking at how they're covering, you know, a story, a straight mm-hmm. story, not a column. The fundamentals are pretty similar. Right. It is yeah. similar. So I, th- I think that we need to recognize that, okay. but it's hard. It's hard. Last question I want to ask, and I appreciate the time for you coming on is, I don't think it comes as a surprise to anyone. You know, we're sort of at a crossroads as a nation. It's a pretty challenging time that, uh, you know, you, you, you look at politics, you look at some of these folks that said, a lot of older people in, in Washington and, and in some of these positions, and eventually maybe even classmates of, of mine are going to go and fill some of these shoes and become, you know, leaders in our in our community and in our country. And, you know, having followed, you know, the, the news, you know, we're, we're in Boston, so we'll use that sort of as the reference point for some time and seeing how things have, have sort of changed and developed and, and, and gotten to where we are today. If you had any advice for, you know, I guess my peers for – the future leaders, you know, so to speak, you know, things that maybe we're not always aware of or things we're maybe not uh, always sort of patient enough to, to understand or perspectives that we might not have. Just something that, uh, you know, is important to keep in mind. Any any advice at all that, that you might want to give to people who are in our shoes? Well, I think, you know, the 
I think people value transparency. And mm-hmm. so I think the more that we get sort of people coming in to, you know, positions of power and out in the community that are that are sort of bringing in this belief that transparency is important and that we should be, you know, clear about what we mean and we should try to, you know, be as open as we possibly can be. I think that that people value that. Mm-hmm. And I think the public values it if it's, you know, especially if it's legitimate. So mm-hmm. it's not just saying you're transparent or not just saying that you care about, you know, being open, but actually being open and being transparent, even if that means uh, acknowledging bad news. You know, I think when I look back over the years at stories that I've done and that, that could have been diffused if someone would just admit they screwed up mm-hmm. instead of like circling the wagons and not. So I just, I just think like, if if a journalist or even just in society, if something screwed up and it's of the public interest, you know, admit you screwed up, mm-hmm. you know, figure out why you screwed up and then work to fix the problem. And I think when we look at successful, you know, people, whether it's in business or in politics or any career, really, those are sort of the leaders that do well, that are willing to admit when a mistake's been made, even if they're involved in it, and then try to, you know, sort of gather the stakeholders and figure out how do we prevent this from happening again, instead of, you know, sort of this attitude like, oh, we can't let anyone know what happened, and Mm -hmm. you're covering it up, and something that presumably was not the biggest issue in the world suddenly gets bigger because you're not just admitting that something went wrong. Very good. Uh, Well, this has been the BC Law Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blake. We've been talking to Mike Wade of Channel 5. Uh, WCVB. Mike, thanks for the time. Really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for having me.